The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Tour Demister. Tour, introduce yourself. Introduce yourself to the audience here. Who are you? What's your background? How did you get interested involved in Bitcoin? And what are you doing currently? Sure. I'm an investment analyst and investor. I started off as a, as a writer, author of a financial newsletter. And then early on, I discovered Bitcoin and I started reporting on it for my audience. This is back in 2011, 12. And then since 2013 or so, I really started going full time in the Bitcoin space, I made some startup investments. And over the years, I've published a number of investment focused reports, you know, talking about the the price cycle in Bitcoin mainly and all the, the global macro factors that come into play. So that's how most people know me. Talk about in those earlier days in 2011 and 2012, did you approach those writings from a place of curiosity, skepticism, or did it kind of grab, made you, did you naturally gravitate toward the story to begin with? Yeah, I mean, I was skeptical in the beginning, 2011, I remember I was especially wondering like how how can you possibly actually create scarcity in a digital context like that really took some time and conversations with very generous engineers who just yeah explained to me the bitcoin protocol and so then gradually it really turned into enthusiasm and uh, you know i i came from the perspective that the banking system was just inherently problematic because of the fractional reserve nature of things I came from the, from the perspective that we were going to see, I was living in Europe at the time, like increased inflation and eventually the euro would disappear. I still believe that. So that from that point of view, I was, I was trying to find like what assets are still good to be invested in, in, you know, if you're going into something like a depression or an inflationary depression. And it's been going on, you know, 12 years that I've had that thesis and. So yeah, early on, gold was my focus, and then gradually, I just added Bitcoin to that to that basket. And did you did you have it as pretty much the bulk, if not all, of your portfolio, or was it balanced against other types of investments? Oh, I, I mean, the way it usually goes with Bitcoin is that you just start with a moderate investment, and then and then because you don't rebalance, it just crowds out everything else because of how much it outperforms. It's you know. If you average it out, I think it's about 200% gains per year, you know, over that 10 year lifespan. So that's, that's enough to just push 
like a, a cuckoo's bird, like to push everything else out of the nest, relatively speaking, then. Yeah, and I'm sure you've seen the, the studies or back tests that show that rebalancing actually gets you pretty good returns also, right? Because volatile nature of Bitcoin lends itself to the natural aspect of buying low, selling high, which is really what rebalancing is against other assets. But I think that kind of lends into a discussion around risk management, right? So no disagreements. Obviously, it's done very well, and it becomes a bigger and bigger portion of portfolio, but then so does the risk, obviously. Now, you can argue that that doesn't matter because, you know, you're already so ahead. But yeah, when you saw your own portfolio, portfolio holdings going higher and higher, did you ever consider just taking some chips off the table or is it just sort of a buy and don't touch it forever? Well, yeah, for me, the way I've compensated for the, the increase in perceived risk, because if you're, if you're kind of like an agnostic macro investor, you just want to be diversified across the board because you want to compensate for your lack of knowledge in particular states as an and then you might be caught off guard. But, but so my strategy and that, you know, of a lot of Bitcoiners by now is to compensate for, for that by just studying harder and just really, cause I, I, I guess my thesis, which admittedly could be wrong, is some kind of private digital currency is going to be dominating for the next decades. Like it just really makes sense to me that we have TCP IP. We have like several protocols that really set the foundation for the internet and the digital world that we live in and that it makes sense that we would also have a monetary protocol that joins them because to me the 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 fiat experiment is really it's already showing that it's a failed experiment like centralized parties you cannot be trusted with managing the money supply you need some kind of objective way to do that the way in, in the way that mimics the gold standards so, so then to me, it's more of a question of, okay, which one is going to win out? And that's why I, I invested so much time year and after year to try and study the space and see like, is Bitcoin really going to be the one? Like, am I suffering from survivor's bias? You know, what about all these other proposals? What about the supposed flaws in Bitcoin? Just to really go over it over and over. And so then you gradually get more comfortable with having a higher concentration of this particular, just like, you know, in the 1800s, people didn't have to think about having a balanced, quote unquote, portfolio. They just had money by and large. They had a life insurance policy. They might have some deposits and all of that was gold. So people were, you know, from our like our 21st century perspective, like they were maddeningly overexposed to gold. But from their point of view, it's like, no, gold has been money for 6,000 years and I'm just saving. That's all I'm doing. So, so that's kind of the point of view of. People that have been in the Bitcoin space for a long time, I don't want to speak for other people, but at least for me, it's like, yeah, you know, I think, I think this is just money. And the reason why it's so volatile is just our reaction to it or the market's reaction to it, but not, it's, that's not a, an inherent feature of the technology. That point about decentralized parties cannot be trusted is unequivocally true, but centralized parties also can have influence, which result, I'd argue, in an unintended path for how certain things can play out. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this narrative that's constantly out there around it's a good thing for Bitcoin to see institutions come into the space in terms of either ETFs or other types of products. And, and the reason I think that's important to talk through is institutions like to put things in boxes, right? They like to ca- categorize. Yeah. They like to characterize you know, how they think about investing, right? So, you know, if, if you get to a point where 
Bitcoin gets dominated by institutional players and then they categorize it as just another NASDAQ play, then they have an influence on the correlation of Bitcoin, which I'd argue you actually don't want. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for sure. Like, you know, whatever story people project on Bitcoin will, you know, if those people manage very sizable assets, then that's going to influence the price. I agree. But I guess the question is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it just is. It just is part of the process. Like, imagine if somebody invented gold 20 years ago or 15 years ago. Like, the the world would grapple with, like, how do we deal with this? How do we price this? Is gold, like, is it an industrial asset? Do we use it only in, you know, for, or, or is it like an ornamental asset? Is it truly, you know? And so the price would be all over the place. And, and, you know, one analogy I've used over the years is, is how the market was valuing petroleum in the early days. Like it was first distilled, derivatives from it were distilled back in the 1860s. And so it was a huge question of like, you know, how useful is this? Does it depend where the oil comes out of the ground? Et cetera, et cetera. And then especially how do you value the oil companies as well? The oil price was extremely volatile in the first few decades. So yeah, to me, it's just part of the process. Like it's not a good or a bad thing. If anything, it just shows that the world is thinking. The world is thinking about Bitcoin. And, you know, and I believe in the first place, it's going to be a means of saving. It's going to be a way to transport, you know, today's wealth over time into the future. And of course, geographically as well, it's, it's, you know, the best at the world in the world at that. If you want to send Bitcoin, you could send it from North Korea or send it to Zimbabwe. It doesn't matter. Like, you know, it, it's, that's how powerful it is. But because of the 21 million limit and all the safety guards around that, it's also a fantastic mean way that preserves scarcity. And that's how you transport value into the future. But to me, that that's the main story. It's like Bitcoin, store of value, has the promise to also become a transactional money, but we're not there yet. And then, of course, you know, Silicon Valley is going to project all kinds of things onto it. And and if you're like a, you know, a nation state and you have a lot of energy production, like maybe then you look at it more as a, a convenient way to 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 put stranded energy to use. So so I think that's it's totally fine for people to have different stories. But I don't think it's it's a fad. I think we're beyond that. Early on, people also thought it was like a pyramid scheme. I think we're beyond that as well. So yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like if people can't understand the, the fundamental value proposition of Bitcoin, they will be having going in with very weak hands. Like they'll buy some, and then as soon as there's a twenty percent, thirty percent correction or more, they'll just you know leave the market because they never you know, understood the fundamental value proposition. Is it is it fair to say that 2021 was the sort of year of not viewing Bitcoin as means of saving, but more as a means of speculation and not just Bitcoin, but really other cryptocurrencies too, right? Given the way the space mm-hmm. acted. And that, and that maybe now we're, just because volatility is quite a bit lower, that we're maybe transitioning to a new way to think about Bitcoin? Uh, I agree 100%. 2021 to me was just a year of kind of, insane exuberance in so many ways. Like, I mean, the floodgates had been open in terms of how much stimulus was going into the economy, how much government spending was happening. And so people were fooled in believing that all of a sudden they had a lot of financial means, even though what really was happening is just a reshuffling of purchasing power in the economy. And so people started, you know, doing the YOLO 
and buying AMC stock and, and going crazy about just pictures on the internet, which was the NFT craze. And yeah, and, and, and believing in all these tokens, which it's almost like an equivalent of like the Beanie Baby story, but then on steroids. So Bitcoin got swept up in that. I think, you know, a lot of the people that bought Bitcoin were doing it from that kind of like, oh, you know, this whole crypto space is exploding. And, it, you know, it's a new world out there and you just got to have some Bitcoin just because. So I think that also is why the, there was, you know, such a prolonged bear market is that, you know, a lot of money was voting on Bitcoin from the wrong point of view and basically has had to sell. And what we're seeing now is that I believe the bottom is already put in by smart money who is there from a value perspective and who are just scooping up cheap Bitcoin. And, and you know, those are the so-called diamond hands, you know, like people that are really intending to stay and, and hold Bitcoin for the next 5, 10, 30 years. Yeah, and it's important to know that, you know, I, I'm sure there's been a lot of, you know, drawing up on the BC private equity space, but there's still, there's still quite a bit of institutional you know, demand that goes to startups trying to, you know, take advantage of this. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, I think I think a lot of the institutional money, though, is still kind of confused. I mean, we are seeing some good signs, though, that there is, you know, now we're seeing more, for the first time, actually, several coin-focused VC funds. And so they, of course, go around to institutions and, 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 and pitch this idea that, hey, you know, what if Bitcoin is TCPIP or what if Bitcoin is World Wide Web and, and everything is going to be built on it? That is the thesis, and that's why they just stick with Bitcoin-only startups to invest in. Whereas before, like if you look at a Coinbase or some of the other more known companies, they would just have this like spray and pray approach of like, oh, we're just going to serve the whole critical crypto space, which meant that they really lost a lot of focus, and which also meant that they would cater to gamblers, basically, to people who didn't really look at Bitcoin as a a store of value. So to me, those are very different philosophies. And it's a, it's encouraging to see that there is at least some money. Like historically, there was actually a fund here in Austin that put out research. And what they showed was, I believe, more than 99%, maybe it was 98%, it was just a staggering amount of all the VC money that went into the crypto space went to crypto startups and only 2% of the money went to actual Bitcoin startups, which is, you know, crazy from a, even a market cap point of view, because Bitcoin's market cap, I would say, if you adjust it for liquidity is at least half of everything else, 50% of the whole pie. So, uh, so yeah, basically we're, we're seeing institutions play catch up now. Yeah. And, and presumably the confusion by institutions gets resolved whenever, you know, Bitcoin is properly properly classified, right, by regulators. I haven't been tracking the the Ripple stuff other than just some random headlines, but 
Um, where are we from your perspective on regulators properly defining Bitcoin and broadly other cryptocurrencies? Well, I think so far, at least in the U.S., I think they're, you know, they're absolutely correct to call Bitcoin a commodity. That's what it is. That's how Satoshi described it. There is nobody in control of the protocol. There is no profit incentive because there is no company in charge. And people just buy it because they believe in it and trade in it, just like you would with any commodity. And as far as the other, you know, tokens, I think most of them probably are unregistered securities. And in a way, this is kind of the only way to really find out because they've been claiming, and I don't mean everyone, but a lot of those coins, tokens like Ripple and Ethereum, they've been claiming like, no, 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 we're also commodities. Me, but that implies that nobody's in control. And so if we would see a crackdown where the SEC calls bluff or or some judge who's saying, you know, there's a there's a scam that happened on your platform. Now you've got to, you know, roll back the chain and, and basically censor transactions. Well, then we'll see in their response. Like they actually do censor the transactions in response to a government edict. Then that's proof that it's actually a centralized platform and much more likely to be a security. So yeah, that's, this is kind of the, another part of the market figuring out what is going on here. Just like, you know, with the dot-com bubble, there was a decade of lawsuits that followed the bubble where the market was, and I'm not saying the market was always right, both in pricing and in, in you know, in, in the, the, the judgments of judges, but, but at least it's a process where you're trying to figure out what's going on. And, and, you know, the Enron guys, they need to, they need to get some punishment and, and the equivalents of Google and Amazon, they need to get their, their time to shine. So I do think there's quite a bit of parallels with, with those two periods. But of course, maybe let me just add this. The challenge as well is that if you acknowledge Bitcoin's basic value proposition, right, which is like a digital store of value, absolute scarcity value that you can transport over time and, and space, well, that means it's a direct challenger to the dollar, right? And so that is challenging for institutions to validate. So like if they validate that proposition, well, it can be seen as, as being not patriotic or being, being, you know, just overly controversial and rebellious or taking a political stance, which of course they want to be just be market players. So I think that is something that's not often talked about, but that's a genuine challenge. And, and I do, I do think Wall Street just loves money and they will find narratives to, excuse these investments, uh, I think they will find ways to get invested regardless of whether it's controversial or not. But it, but it could, you know, explain some of the hesitation and some of the more confused messaging around this. What I find interesting about the behavior this year is you had that spike in March, right, which when the regional bank crisis was playing out, I myself said, publicly, it's almost like a wet dream for Bitcoin maxis, right? Because you have counterparty risk now in the headlines. Bitcoin counters because of the lack of counterparty risk. But then, you know, they at least for a moment saved the system and everyone forgot about the regional bank crisis. Now maybe starting to come back into the mindset here. How important is ongoing banking system failures to Bitcoin here now, right? I myself believe that we're probably on the edge of a credit event, if not already in one. Credit event would pull into question counterparty risk anyway. And that's one of the reasons I keep saying I think Bitcoin will diverge this time compared to other high volatility risk off periods. But 
how do you think about the interaction of Bitcoin demand to, you know, banking system trust given what still seems like some real credit issues? Yeah, just to make sure I understand, when you say you think this time Bitcoin will diverge, in what sense do you mean? Meaning it will not correlate to that. Right, right. It'll, it'll be more like a safe haven asset, is that what you think? Yeah, more. I, I suspect more of a, as a counter. It doesn't necessarily have to go up, but even hold or down less yeah. would be enough. I mean, that would make it more like gold in, in risk-off periods. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. Generally, that's, that's whole part of why I'm so bullish, is that not only is this just better technology, but it comes in a period where the financial system is, is shaking in its foundations. And, and Bitcoin has very clearly shown that it doesn't correlate with a lot, but it actually does interestingly correlate with increases in the money supply. Like it doesn't respond to CPI inflation, which is kind of the after of when you push a lot of new money in the system, but it does really respond to increases in the money supply. So, so and that to me is, is kind of shows that there's actual smart money behind Bitcoin because it, 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 the money understands that, you know, when there is a big wave of bailouts that that will have, that will down the road decline the value of the dollar, for example. But so, yeah, just to speak to this particular crisis, it's so weird that the bailouts that we're seeing, even adjusted for inflation, are on par or even bigger than what we saw in 2008. And yet nobody seems to really pay attention. Like I was around, and I'm sure you were too, back in 2008, and there was just, people were shocked at the amount and the, the amount of the bailout and just how how unprecedented that was. But now it's just taken for granted. Like, oh yeah, like they're going to bail out the banks. Like, sure, maybe some shareholders will lose some value, but at least the depositors will all get bailed out. And now we're seeing players like, what is it now? Schwab seems to be in problems, and 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 definitely the regional the regional stuff is not is not over at all because a lot of they seem to have a lot of exposure to mortgages and then. That's a huge problematic sector as well. So I agree. Like there's a credit. I mean, I would say, yeah, credit. Where isn't there going to be a credit event? Like if you look at just interest rates on government debt, like that is going bananas. U.S. government is now going to pay close to a trillion dollars just on the interest on their own debt. It's just insane. If you, especially if you start expressing that as percentage of tax revenues are a country like Japan, or I mean, just you name it, you know, there's just credit risk everywhere, which to me means the only answer, it's just a matter of when, is going to be opening the money faucets big time. And that's what happened in, you know, the late 1700s in France, where they they would just respond to every crisis with more money printing. And, and, And just like with a heroin addict, you know, the more, the higher the doses, the lower the response gets because the system just gets, anticipates the next shots. And so eventually what happens is the money just really starts going down the drain. And so to me, in a way, if you want to look at what the future is, like we got to look at places like Argentina and Turkey and yeah, Brazil. I think Brazil is maybe not in that bad shape right now, but at least, you know, high inflation is down the road to be expected. And so... I mean, I like gold. I want to like gold, but I struggle a bit with how geographically constraining it is. Like, it's very expensive to move gold across borders. It's very expensive to store and audit gold. If you buy a bar of gold, like, or most companies, larger companies, they'll just automatically melt it down just to make sure there's no tungsten in it. 
So that's all really expensive and the coin just bypasses that. So to me, relatively speaking, yeah, it's, I find it's like not scary at all to talk about $200,000 Bitcoin, $400,000 Bitcoin in the future, even corrected for inflation. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. So you put out a research report, how to position for the Bitcoin boom. And I'm going to assume the spoiler alert is to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> but but it, it is curious because like, yeah, it's opposite what I think about, right? How do you position Bitcoin? Buy Bitcoin. But I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that. So maybe just kind of lay out some of the things that you you put together in that piece. Yeah, so it, 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 I started writing it as like, $18,000 Bitcoin, like really early in, in, in the year this year, just out of frustration. Like that's usually how these reports starts. Cause I, I get frustrated with the despondency, even among Bitcoiners or apathy and a lot of the fear, uncertainty, doubt stories that start to pop up. It's like, Oh, well, Bitcoin is probably, it's going to go a lot lower because scenario XYZ is surely going to happen. And so that's what I started doing is really evaluating those scenarios one by one. It's like, all right, let's 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 say, you know, this scenario of Bitcoin miners selling a lot more Bitcoin. Like, is that realistic? How many coins do you actually have? Or, you know, what if another Bitcoin exchange goes bankrupt? What, what happens then with the price? Or, you know, what about the scenario where Satoshi all of a sudden comes out of the woodwork and he tries to sell his 1 million Bitcoin that he supposedly... Anyway, so I just go over a bunch of those scenarios. And a big one, or one of the biggest one, is, is government crackdowns. Because I, I do think Bitcoin clearly has entered the, you know, the political arena very clearly. Like there are Bitcoin candidates, but then I think we're, we'll also see backlash, and we'll see Bitcoin being this, you know, called out as the scapegoat or used as a scapegoat, even for inflation. I, I can see that where Bitcoin goes up a lot and then it, it's blamed. Or I mean, we already saw that Bitcoin is blamed as supposedly contributing to global warming and things like that. So so I, I go over that in the report, all those scenarios and just evaluating them one by one. And and then of course there's some some significant tailwinds that I also talk about. And eventually I go into okay, well say that you want to buy some Bitcoin. Like how how do you how can you think about it? So like do you dollar cost average or do you you know buy a lump sum? So there's like different approaches. And then also as far as how much to allocate in your portfolio, you know, how, how can we think about these things? Because I do believe that everybody's different and, uh, you know, even just by demographics, right? If you're 25 years old and you're just at the beginning of your earning years versus if you're 65, like you're going to have a completely different, you know, set of desires. Like, what do you want your portfolio to do for you? So, so in that context, I talk about Bitcoin as looking at it as an insurance of the rest of your portfolio, which is the more conservative approach, you know, just a 2 to 5% of your assets, convert those into Bitcoin. And then if if you're, the bond part of your portfolio goes up in flames because of that credit event we're talking about, or if the real estate 
starts to, maybe even if it's just flat, but the dollar inflation is 20, 30, 40%, well, then, then, you know, part of your portfolio starts to, starts to be on fire. And that's where I think Bitcoin will really outperform and, and kind of save the day. So that's one way. And then there's a, there's a few other, you know, more aggressive strategies that I think people can consider when and looking to invest in Bitcoin. And then the final part of the report is where I go into more practically. It's like, okay, well, I'm ready to buy Bitcoin. Now, how do I store it? Because that's a really big question. And I think the importance of that question has been made clear with the default of FTX and several other like earning schemes in, in the Bitcoin space. It's clearly very important to think about how to store your Bitcoin and, and that's where I ended, end up suggesting thinking about using collaborative custody, which is a way to use multiple signatures to store your Bitcoin and you control one or multiple. And then you allow one or two corporations to control like one or two keys for you so that you have that a great mix of, you know, managing your own keys, like never giving ultimate control to any outside party, like not having that third party risk, but at the same time, also having some support because still today, by far, the biggest reason why Bitcoin lose, people lose Bitcoin is just they forget their password, they lose their keys, just pure loss events. And so that's where this collaborative custody is, in my view, you know, for the vast majority of people, it, it's a it's a great middle ground solution. Let's talk about other other macro factors to consider when it comes to thinking about Bitcoin. I mean, look, I, I think if you're a long-term investor, then yeah, the idea of dollar cost averaging makes the most sense, right? It's just like every other type of investment from that standpoint. But for those that want to try to time it tactically, what are some of the things that you observe that might make for potential you know, reasons to enter, right? So, yeah, I mean... If you want to try and time it, yeah, like for sure, if you do a lump sum invest, and, you know, there's no way, there's no reason to choose one or the other. You can combine as well. You can have some part as in lump sum and then, and then dollar cost average as, as time goes by. But uh, if you do the lump sum approach, your, res- your results tend to be more volatile. And unless you manage to really, you know, choose the top when everybody's losing their minds, you will likely outperform a dollar cost averaging approach. Just based on you know, what we've seen the past 12 years. And as far as timing the market goes, one very simple way to look at things is just how, how far are we down from the previous all time high? I think right now we're still down like 65%. Cause remember, we come from $65,000 Bitcoin, right? And now we're down at, I believe, 25,000. So that's a really significant down draft. If you look at simple things like Google Trends, you see that global interest in Bitcoin is still down like 70% compared to, you know, when, when, when the, the top was around. So, so I think that over the long term, if we look back five years from now, 10 years from now, it'll be very clear that this is a period where Bitcoin was significantly undervalued. And then additionally, and that's something I do in the report as well, you can look at some, some of the ways that Bitcoin holders have been behaving. Because I don't know how familiar your audiences with the the mechanics of Bitcoin, but basically, you know, one of the ways that Bitcoin stays or or enforces its scarcity is by having maintaining a, a ledger. It it keeps track of every transaction settlement that ever happens in Bitcoin in what's called the Bitcoin blockchain. And so you have that ledger 
So you see the Bitcoins moving around. Like, of course, you don't know who sends it to whom. And sometimes it can be a self-dealing transaction. Sometimes there'll be someone who's just reshuffling their own coins. But even then, you know, I believe that it's significant because that, you know, when you have Bitcoin in cold storage, it takes effort to, to get to your Bitcoin and to start, you know, the process of moving them around. There is some security risk involved in doing that. And so, you know, even having the option to sell your Bitcoin at that time, I think that's significant where you, you know, you touch your own Bitcoin. But the vast majority of those, you know, movements on the blockchain are going to be Bitcoin changing owners. And so it's super interesting because you can basically organize your knowledge of the blockchain by how old the Bitcoin are. Like some Bitcoins are going to be very old. Some of them are five years old, seven years old. And then other Bitcoin balances are going to be one year old or two months old or, you know, two weeks old. And so you can basically start analyzing what are the whales doing? That's one of the things that you can really find out by doing blockchain analysis. People that hold thousands of Bitcoin, hundreds of Bitcoin, sometimes balances of over 100,000 Bitcoin. How are those whales thinking? And just you try and come at that. You know, you, you come and come up with hypotheses based on their action because you can literally see what they're doing. And so one of the things that we see consistently is when when Bitcoin is, with the benefit of hindsight, truly overvalued, when there is exuberance, when the price is, is at, a, at a place where six months or 12 months later is 50% lower, when there is exuberance, Bitcoin whales will actually sell Bitcoin. You see the old coins just coming in and boom, like moving moving around and being, you know, that's, that's my belief, being sold. And so that's a really valuable metric, right? So, cause, cause then you can look at what whales are doing today and wondering like, well, are they selling? Are they holding? Like, what are they doing? And very clearly, whales have been not selling into these recent rallies. Like we've actually gone up 100% since the bottom, right? And you can very clearly see that whales are just unfazed, they're holding, they don't think Bitcoin is overvalued at all. So, so that, that's one way to look at, at, at Bitcoin that I think is valuable because it's actually, like if you could, imagine if you could do that with gold or with you know, any, any other asset that would be tremendously valuable. And so we have the luxury that even though it's anonymized, we, we have access to that data in the Bitcoin space. A lot of people say there's Bitcoin and there's everything else, which may be true, but is there anything that from your vantage point is you know, somewhat of a competitor? Well, I mean, for years, like since since it first was talked about in 2014 and then eventually it was launched, I believe, and late in 2015, I've been following Ethereum because to me, that always was kind of a competitor in the sense that it tried to clean uh, the intellectual space that Bitcoin was claiming that some of the promises of Bitcoin, like smart contract, uh, asset issuance, all those kind of things. Ethereum was saying like, we can do that and we'll do it better. And they were also saying like, Bitcoin is slow. Like, look at how slow these transactions are. We can make faster transactions. So, so it's trying to, in a way, like run Bitcoin. I was trying to, you know, catch its, its, you know, snatch away its, glory and, and say like, no, 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 we are the actual. And of course, there was a lot of 
oh no, which, you know, that's what you want to do when you're an attacker is you want to, you want to present yourself as, as innocent and no, we're just trying to be friends. And, you know, we're, we're going to all be one big ecosystem. But to me, as became clear later when they started pushing this narrative, like, oh, we are ultrasound money. Like they've always been trying to not complement Bitcoin, but try to like overtake the narratives. And so that was, has all, and because also, for example, the decentralized narrative, like at least the Ripple has made little claims to being actually decentralized. They've really been cozying up to, to governments. Like they, they kind of want to become the issuer of central bank digital currencies. They, you know, they always promote how, how transparent they are and how easy it is to monitor everything. Whereas Ethereum, like they pretended to have this, the same cypherpunk roots of like, oh, well, you know, it's going to be a new world and, and people can do things privately. And even the word DeFi, like decentralized finance, like that is what's being built on top of Ethereum. So yeah, that, that's been the main one that I've been studying over the years. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's clear that it's just becoming ever more centralized. They've, they've done so many hard forks by now. The hard fork is where you change the, the software in such a way that it becomes no longer compatible with previous versions. So imagine it, you know, back in the day or maybe still today, like you upgrade your Windows computer and you notice that, you know, certain file types or certain things cannot be used on an older version anymore. So it's not reverse compatible. So that's what Ethereum has done many times over the years and they keep doing is making these hard forks Whereas Bitcoin has always done soft forks, like forks that do change the code, but in a way that old stuff can always still be, the old functionalities all still work. It's just you're adding new features. And so because of these hard forks, you basically are needing to follow a very small amount of people who become the de facto leaders of Ethereum to make sure that you keep on following whatever software upgrade they propose or whatever change they propose. So they become the de facto czars of the whole network. And anyway, I could go on and on about it. But so to me, it's that's the one to watch in terms of market cap or versus Bitcoin or the price, the Ethereum Bitcoin pair, for example. If you if you want to look at it from like a trading point of view, look at that chart. By now we have about, I think, about seven years of data there. And, and try to find out the, the support and resistance levels. And I believe it's going to break down. I think Ethereum is going to lose against Bitcoin. And I think it's kind of the, the symbolical leader for, for almost all the altcoins, for almost all the alternative cryptocurrencies that are out there. Most of them are predicated on the Ethereum story, gaining the upper hand and that idea of like, we say that we're decentralized, but we're not really, that that people are going to keep believing that. So I think, you know, once the Ethereum bubble bursts, a lot else is going to follow. And that's why in the report as well, I talk about the impending decoupling of Bitcoin with the crypto space. Yeah, just those are just some thoughts. Again, we agree on Bitcoin will we'll diverge just from that alone. All right, so we got an election year next year, and you see some rumblings from Robert Kennedy and Vivek and others talking about Bitcoin. I'd be surprised if any mainstream candidates make it as part of the platform, but any thoughts on sort of how 
Bitcoin could maybe turn into a political issue next year? Yeah, I think it already is. I mean, if you just look at it from an adoption point of view, I'd have to look at like the latest surveys. And it's a little bit frustrating if you look at, try to find out about Bitcoin adoption, because all the surveys tend to ask about crypto, right? And so if you have some kind of, I don't know, some shit coin like Solana or something, and you get a survey like that, you're going to be like, yes, I own crypto. But to me, that's not the same. I, I would want to know is how many people actually own Bitcoin, because I think that's the election issue. That's what, you know, Bukele ran on in El Salvador. You know, he became the Bitcoin president, not the crypto president. But even, you know, even without that data, I think it's probably safe to say we're, we're in at least 10% adoption among voting adults, if, if not more. And so gradually, you know, Bitcoin, especially for people who have significant amount of savings, it could become a single issue. They could become single issue voters where they don't care if the candidate is is Democrat or Republican or independent, like they just want to vote for the Bitcoin guy. So even if Trump would run on a Bitcoin platform, like maybe they would vote for him. So so I think that's why, you know, politicians are are catching wind of that and they realize like, oh, this is actually a parade that is going on. And maybe if I wave a flag in front of it, opportunistically or not, maybe they actually believe in it. You know, I can I can really rally these votes. So, yeah, I mean, I think that you're right. You know, the the existing powers that be are very much in in enmeshed with the the fiat system, with with Wall Street, with their you know their, their traditional donors, etc. So they're very unlikely to to be friendly to Bitcoin. Like I think it's more likely that they would be neutral to negatives on Bitcoin. And, and especially if there's inflation, we could even see kind of a crackdown on Bitcoin where, again, it's it's, it's a scapegoat. And, and we do have the precedent of 1931, I believe, the, the act that, that cracked down on, on possession of physical gold. So, you know, it's something to look out for. I think basically, to me, the main thesis that I have is like, uh, Bitcoin is going to be extremely polarizing. Like it's going to become an issue and you won't be able to be neutral on it. Like it'll either you'll be like, I'm a Bitcoin guy. I'm all in favor of it. Or you'll be like, Bitcoin is the devil. And, uh, and so we'll see certain elections swaying one way and they'll try to abolish it, which is impossible and, and censor it, which is going to end up badly. And then we'll see other countries that embrace it and, uh, and have very friendly legislation. And and of course, you know, money can vote with their feet. So I think money is going to flow to those places that are friendly to Bitcoin. Like, I think Latin America is going to be an interesting example in that sense. You know, they clearly there, a lot of those countries are fed up with being part of the dollar system, or at least they want more options. In Africa, we see similar things. And then the US is a, is a bit of a toss up so far. I I, I think that because of the constitutional rights, the right to property, especially people always say like Bitcoin is free speech, but I, I don't really think that that is the one that's going to hold the most weight. I think it's more like the right to property that's going to, you know, make the difference. And then gradually, increasingly, we're seeing state, you know, the, the individual states having more political weight as compared to the federal government. I think those, those are going to be the deciding factors on you know, how, how, where the penny is going to drop as far as Bitcoin goes. Tara, for those who want to track more of your thoughts and analysis and work, uh, where would you point them to? 
Oh, I would say, yeah, just Google my name and you'll find my, my Twitter account. I think it's also linked there. And then if you go to adamantresearch.com, it's my research firm. Adamantresearch.com has direct links to all my reports, like my, my historical reports of the past years. And then there's also a link to our latest report, which is how to position for the Bitcoin boom. It's 20 pages. It's very dense. But I wrote it specifically with the lay audience in mind. Like this is the stuff that literally I sent to my family and friends. So it's it's meant to be valuable for both investment professionals and the people who just invest for their own their own funds. Everybody again, please make sure you follow Tur. I've got two more spaces back to back. So I'm gonna wrap this one up a little bit early just to prep, but please give a follow to Tur. Hopefully I'll see you all on the next two that are coming up. And Tur, I appreciate your time. Thanks, Michael. Great questions. Enjoyed being here. Thank you, everybody. Cheers. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.